Church, if you'll take God's word in your hand, and as you do so, we should be reminded this morning before we pray that there's always tremendous, tremendous profit to be had when this book is opened. Uh, Really, in large part, the Reformation, the crux of it, was a desire for all people to be able to place themselves under this life-changing book and be made vulnerable to its power. And so I extend that to you with the hope that that would not only temper our resolve to take heed to this book, but also safeguard us. And that is safeguard us from a lifeless and mechanical reading of the word of God this morning. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's ask for the Lord's help and express our neediness before him today. Father, we want to do what we just sang of a moment ago. We want every facet of our being to be about the business of blessing your name. And part of that blessing will come as we joyfully and gladly welcome the invasion of your word in our life for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask for your great name that you would do a work among us for your own exaltation. Lord, would you convict, would you instruct, and would you lead us in the way we ought to go? We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. If there's always tremendous profit to be had, we have to ask the question on this morning is, well then wherein lies the profit of Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20? To answer that question, we have to know what this book says about ourselves. You see, you and I are constantly staring down various dangers that can potentially lead to our demise. And the scary part about this is that they're not so much dangers from without as they are dangers from within. One of the things this book is very clear about is that life has a way of mystifying us. We spend our days making observations about this life under the sun and we are left scratching our heads. In many ways, this is why Solomon writes, vanity of vanities, All is what, church? Vanity. Hevel. The nature of life is fleeting. Everything around us is temporary. We are transitory creatures. We are here and then we are gone. We are like smoke. We are like vapor, Solomon writes. But this description of smoke and vapor or vanity, Hevel being the Hebrew word, is also an apt description of the various conundrums that we face along the way. You see, there are a variety of enigmas and perplexities of life that we simply can't get our minds around. We see something, we make an observation, and we reach out to hold it with what we hope is understanding, only to then have that understanding pass through our fingers and dissipate in thin air. And in those moments, what happens? You and I are humbled by a God-created reality that we can't control. Ecclesiastes 3.11 puts this in a succinct way. Our great God has literally placed eternity in our hearts, meaning we have these soul questions, these gnawing questions within us of which we yearn for answers. And yet, read the rest of the verse, yet so that man will not find out the work of God has done from the beginning even to the end. We want to know but we don't have the capacity to know these things. And so what's the message that is, comes piercing through into our confusion? Well, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15 says this plainly, our God is sovereign over all things, amen? Our God has a plan over all people, all events, all times, and that plan is, Solomon writes, beautiful. Ecclesiastes 3, 11. All of his appointments are appropriate in their time. He remains unquestionably good in his sovereignty. Of this we are thankful, yes? And here's the thing, though. We know this and we believe this with every facet of our being, but still. How do we reconcile the evil and the injustice and the brokenness that we see in this life under the sun with the fact that our God is good and is in control? This we desire to know with every facet of our being. We are hardwired. We have eternity written on our hearts. 
And thankfully, our great God knows that we have a way of reconciling this dilemma in very, very inappropriate ways. You see, because we are fallen creatures, by God's design, unable to know what he is doing from beginning to end, we have a propensity to lose our way. We are now bent in such a way that we are quick to flounder instead of fear the Lord. And so herein lies the prophet of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. See, at this point in the book, God is providing certain cautions, certain warnings, lest we be led to deny the reality and the existence and the beauty of the providence and plan of God in our lives. To put this in another way, Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon is cautioning us believers, don't respond inappropriately. After you observe all of this darkness of this life under the sun, don't become practical atheists. What is practical atheism? Well, friends, it's when your life manifests doubt in God. Sure, we may voice one thing with our lips, but our life has a way of manifesting something different, doesn't it? We act as if God is not in control. And what does this practical atheism look like? Well, there are many different ways that people can respond and deal with the fallen world that they see around them. In the passage preceding ours today, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, and this is allowing us to attach the train to all of the momentum that's transpired, we see that one inappropriate way is to think that you can barge into the house of God and give God what for. You see, we're inclined in our sinfulness to have the audacity to think that we could stand in the presence of he who resides in heaven and lecture him as to what he should and should not do in our life. And to this, Solomon says, be careful, believers, be careful. If you are to be a people who have a steady, rock-solid trust in a sovereign God, that requires you have a proper worship of a sovereign God. Don't allow your observations of earth lead you to take an irreligious stance in life. The conclusion of the matter, the whole book, fear God and keep his commandments. Don't become a practical atheist. Now, these warnings and these cautions continue and take on even more specific form right here in verse 8. There's another temptation we have. And the main idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Everything our God does is appropriate and beautiful. And if we are to trust him, well, then steady trust in a sovereign God requires that you resist the urge to trust in wealth. Let's read verse 8 this morning. Solomon writes, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, And there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry In his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So, what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Verse 18 Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, 
As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, I love this part, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now, friends, remember, Solomon has the right to speak with great authority on the issue of wealth, yes? This is 10 centuries ago, but it's been calculated that Solomon had an annual income of $22 million in equivalents today. When you tack on inflation, that's an incalculable sum back in Solomon's time. In fact, 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon's wealth was so prolific that literally gold and silver were stones in the streets. So church, you and I can't really possibly begin to fathom the expansiveness of Solomon's wealth and all that he enjoyed. His treasures were the envy of all those on the planet who loved money. You would say his portfolio was unrivaled on the earth. Now we're familiar with the notion of portfolio, no? In the business world, your worth is measured by your portfolio. It's a term that encompasses everything that you own. And now here in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon unpacks the intangible contents of two very, very different portfolios. You have the portfolio of wealth without God, verses 8 through 17, and you have the portfolio of wealth with God, verses 18 through 20. Let's begin to unpack portfolio 1, that of wealth without God. As you place this briefcase upon the table and you crack it open, the first holding that you find in this does not begin a very pleasant list, just a headline. It's that of oppression. Verse 8, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the land is an advantage to the land. Now, what's he talking about here? It's a sad reality, but a rich man without God has uncontrolled influence and power over his stuff, his people, and really his wealth on the whole. You just think about it for a moment. The rich tend to be those in power, yes, just on a practical level. Politicians, lawmakers, the best educated, those who own the land, those who own places to enjoy. In short, the rich often become our leaders more often than they do not. You just take the leader of the free world today, our president. By human standards, he's incredibly rich. In fact, I've never known really anyone to run for president who has made $30,000 a year. That's typically not what transpires. And in verse 8, the rich, Solomon says, the rich though, the rich without God, those who come to power, typically don't have a biblical ethic that they adhere to. So what happens? They begin to take advantage of the poor. That's the point. The poor can't do battle with those who are rich. They're outmatched by the resources of those who are wealthy. And so they cannot stand up against injustice. They can't beat the system, as it were. The system which is run by rich individuals without God is too big. You even see in James 5, there's a very strong indictment towards such people. As James writes, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Why are they to weep? Listen, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be witnessed against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields in which you had with and was withheld by you. And that's, that's a strong disobedience to Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. Withholding wages for those who have earned such through labor. The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. 
You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Why does he not resist you? Because he can't. Such is their influence and power. So the first item or holding that you see in this portfolio is that of oppression. But notice also verse 9. Very important. Lest we be too critical of the system of the rich who are in charge. Verse 9 says, listen, the poor still do get a benefit of some of the profits of the rich, nonetheless. Verse 9, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. So verse 9 is a little side note. It's strategically placed. Why? It's so that you and I don't become bitter towards the rich. Yes, the system is broken. This world is broken. We expect this. Make no mistake about it, Solomon writes, we still do inherit blessing from this bad system. And so the issue in these first two verses is that a rich man without God typically does not use or share his wealth with those who have less, such as the ungodly rich man. In fact, in many times, he purposely takes advantage of the poor. He oppresses them. Now, this is a pretty initial grotesque start to a portfolio, is it not? To have item number one pull out of the briefcase be that of oppression is not a welcomed holding. But there's also still more inside of this portfolio. The second item that you see within is that of dissatisfaction as you move your way to verse 10. And friends, verse 10 ought to be taped to our mirror to look at every single morning of our short life. It puts plainly, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves abundance with its income, this too is vanity. It's Havel. It's like steam off of the cup of coffee that you hold in your hand in the morning. It's here and it's gone. Church, at this point, we have to be very, very careful students of Scripture. Notice that the the very intentional word choice here, he says... Those who love money rather than simply those who possess money. It says, he who loves such things will not be satisfied with such things. It doesn't say you can't possess money. It's a warning for those who love such things. We'll see later on in this passage that you can be both a godly and a wealthy person. Money is not the evil. It's the love of money. That is the problem. Very reminiscent of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, right? The love of money is the root, the source of all sorts of evil. See, the Bible never indicts a person for having wealth. It only indicts us for loving. It's the love of such things that we have to be careful. So Solomon goes on to say, listen, money will never, ever satisfy you. You can ask a wide swath of the populace today, how much would it take to satisfy you? And what's the resounding answer in some form or fashion? Well, just a little bit more than I have right now. The church, we know from God's word that there's never enough. And that's by God's design. Money is incapable of satisfying. So the second item in the portfolio of wealth without God is dissatisfaction. Church, this is why you and I struggle with this. We wrestle with the notion that we feel like we never have enough. And perhaps you can relate. Why is that? That's because Ecclesiastes 5.10. Money will never, ever satisfy. You take the wealthiest people on the planet and they still have this gnawing dissatisfaction within them apart from God himself. Yes, money can bring temporary thrills, but in the end, it only makes us want more. So here's the, caref- here's the takeaway. People of God, be careful of feeding your natural attraction to stuff and money. And when I say be careful, that requires a very intentional, deliberate purpose in your life to not feed this attraction that's natural and innate to your fallenness. Be careful not to feed. 
this attraction for money. The appropriate practical pastoral question to ask, well, how do I know if I love money? It's a fair question. How do I know if I love money? Well, friends, just look at how much you give away versus how much you hoard. Start there. Look at how much of it you spend on yourself instead of spending on others. Look at how much we stress about such things. Put simply, friends, simply look at how we do before the Lord with our money. How does the Lord assess our life? All of these are measurements of our hearts in this area. I love Luke 16. There's an account in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus looks upon the Pharisees. In Luke 16, 14, it says, These people loved money and that which was esteemed among men. And you know what he says? Be careful, you who justifies yourself in the sight of men. God knows your heart. And the things esteemed among men are detestable in his sight. Friends, that's powerfully convicting. God knows your heart as he knows my heart in this area. Not only does he know your heart, but just a side note here, and I mention this not for the purpose of condemning, because some of you may very well be digging out of this hole, but if you are constantly and perpetually chasing debt, Friends, you will never be able to serve others like God wants. My encouragement, again, no condemnation. My encouragement, make one of your most practical life purposes right now to in every aggressive way imaginable to get out of debt and start there. Chip away, do what you can, seek counsel, whatever it takes. Take this yoke from you. Do not be a slave to the lender, as Solomon writes. On North Lake, as you dig further into this portfolio, this analysis is not very encouraging thus far. Thus far, wealth without God does not boast a very sound portfolio. We've seen oppression and we've seen dissatisfaction. It will never satisfy, but Solomon also goes on to convey that it also entails frustration. Look at verse 11. He writes, when good things increase... Those who consume them increase. Meaning if you have wealth and have stuff, people know it and you probably have a lot of friends. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. What's he saying here? At the end of the day, having a lot of money and having a lot of things does not lead to happiness, and we know this. It doesn't lead to happiness as much as it leads to frustration. And this is Solomon's point. One of the main reasons is that it affects relationships or has a way of doing so. This is what's going on in verse 11. Wealth has a way of attracting human leeches and people who simply want to know you for what they can get out of you. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So that it seems like the more that you have the more people have their hands deep inside of your pockets. Just listen to what Solomon tells us in Proverbs 19.4. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. Brothers and sisters, in other words, the absence of wealth and the presence of wealth has a way of staining and soiling relationships. I need to be very clear, and I need you to listen closely this morning. You know what's different about the church of Jesus Christ? Money should have no effect on our relationships. Money shouldn't make any difference in the relationship among the people of God. Why is that? Our common bond is not stuff, but a person, and his name is Jesus. And because of that, if our great God is, in fact, our treasure, then we all share the same treasure, 
commonly together, do we not? Everything else is temporary. It's fleeting. It's Havel. It's like smoke or vapor. Well, then why would I allow our relationship and my relationship to be dictated and affected by the absence and presence of that which would not last? That's the question here in Ecclesiastes 8. The people of God should be radically and wonderfully and observably different. And so Solomon is holding out for us a very sad progression in verse 12. Money brings more people, more people bring more worry, and more worry brings less sleep. Mark this, North Lake. Riches don't bring the ease from freedom. They bring frustration. You see, the rich without God are always doing what? They're always worrying about their stuff. The ungodly are always worrying about obtaining more stuff and protecting their stuff and looking after those who manage their stuff and trying to keep out others who want their stuff. Solomon elsewhere in this book talks about the more you have, you, you stress about having storehouses to put it so it doesn't roth, rust or moth eat it. And you worry about these things in such a way that you do not spend any time focusing on how God wants you to live and walk in life. It's very reminiscent of the parable of soil, the soil and sower, right? Jesus says the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things enter in and chokes it out and it becomes unfruitful. What a great description, the deceitfulness of riches. It promises satisfaction, freedom, and ease. And it offers something very different. It enters in and chokes out the word so that it's unfruitful. Just look at the first part of verse 12 again before we move on. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. What does this mean? Church, there's nothing like working hard all day and laying your head down at the pillow at night absolutely exhausted at a long, satisfying, hard day at work. Solomon writes, it's pleasant. An honest living is sweet and pleasant. There's just something satisfying about this type of living. And I'd give an exhortation and encouragement, parents, just have your attention for a moment. There's also something equally sweet and profitable about instilling in our kids the concept that things are not free. That it's good to work hard for a living. And so the admonition there is let's not make it so easy on them that we do them a disservice. Okay? Teach them what it is to work. Teach them the concept that you have to extend labor for provision to come your way. It doesn't always just get handed to you. In fact, in college, I know I studied personally in class knowing that I was the one paying for it. I definitely didn't want to, A, take the class over, but I sure enough didn't want to pay for it again. There's something good about that. Solomon writes, it's pleasant. You go to sleep tired at night, and this is good. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. he who trusts, trusts in riches will fall. And I love this, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. I don't know about you, but I want my children to flourish. I want them to be Psalm 1 type kids. Trees firmly planted by streams of living water. What else does this portfolio of the ungodly wealthy person have? Oppression, dissatisfaction, frustration, but also desperation. Desperation. Solomon writes, there is a grievous evil, very common phrase in this book. A grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their own owner to his hurt. Literally, once you get what you want, there's a certain degree of desperation about your gain if you do not have God as your treasure. Solomon calls this a grievous evil, a tragic fact of life under the sun. We know this in real life. This is the life of the miser who works really hard to accumulate his wealth and then he sits in isolation at the end of his life staring at, at what he's obtained. 
according to his own hurt. Look at verse 14. When those riches, riches were lost through a bad investment, and that can happen in a moment's notice. And he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. Friend, Solomon's point is that riches are fragile. It can easily be lost through bad investments. He's going to reiterate this again in a couple of chapters. He says, listen, you're going to spend your whole life making money, and then you're going to do this. At the end of your life, guess what? You're going to give it to someone else who didn't work for it. And odds are they're going to blow it. You fast forward a few years later, what happens in Solomon's life? He passes, and who takes the throne? Rehoboam, who does not walk with the Lord. The kingdom is divided, a civil war breaks out, and what happens to all of that wealth? It begins to dissipate. Exactly what Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes describes is what transpires in Solomon's life. Everyone knows the Vanderbilt family, yes? Tycoons that they were. Not just three generations after the Vanderbilts when all their wealth In 1973, they had 120 people from their family get together, and not one person had a million dollars to their name. All of the wealth transpired just like the book of Ecclesiastes. It was given to someone else who didn't work for it, and they blew it. Solomon says, welcome to death. (laughs) This is basically the message. Verse 15 The punch gets stronger. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. And what is it that he will what is it that he will leave with? The principle there is nothing. (laughs) That's the point. The same argument of the book of Job. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So What is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Fair question. What is the advantage? Is there any advantage to him? Friends, the ultimate reality about life and wealth is that you can't take it with you. We know this all over scripture. Money is everywhere. Wealth is everywhere. And how you handle wealth is everywhere. Sort of like as if God knew this would be a big deal for fallen creatures. Proverbs 23, 4, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Man, that's convicting. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heaven. Psalm 49 that our pastor read a moment ago. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish. It doesn't make any difference and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought, notice the arrogance, is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. You know this later in the New Testament, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what, what does he go on to say in verse 17? For the world is what, church? Passing away, it's hevel, vanity, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God, they are different, they live forever. Friend Solomon is writing at the end of his life, and he's looking at his own wealth, and he's seeing that it will not follow him into his coffin, and even if it could, it would do him no good there. You see, you and I on the news, every couple of years, we see that they've found some significant person in Egypt's history, some pharaoh. And usually when you find that tomb, it's like striking gold. Why? It's because as a people, they were obsessed with this thought that you could take your stuff with you to the afterlife. Let me ask you, how did that work out for any of them? Most of the time that you enter into their tomb, It's already empty. Why? Because someone's already been there and already raided it. So in verse 17, Solomon continues to paint this picture of a desperate man. And this gets dark in a hurry. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. 
Friends, darkness is a picture of isolation and loneliness. Go back earlier a few verses. You have a lot of friends, but you're still lonely. Vexation, sickness, and anger, these are the products of a life in, in the pursuit of money. Again, you're always wringing your hands, stressing about these things that you've attained, things that you can't even take with you. So thus again, throughout this book, and even here, death has a way of bringing things into focus, does it not? It reminds us of what is really important. If your life is without God, the response is like this man, you are, you are desperate. You live your life in vexation, sickness, and anger, bitterness. If you've lived for a while on the earth, you know a man by the name of Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was a pretty much everything sort of guy. He was a business mogul, investor, record-setting pilot, engineer, film director, philanthropist. He did pretty much everything. And he was known during his lifetime as one of the most influential and financially successful people in all of the world. But he was also considered one of the world's ultimate mysteries. You see, he was incredibly secretive and reclusive. For more than 15 years, no one could even say whether or not Howard Hughes was alive, let alone what he looked like or how he behaved. Hughes, at that day, was the wealthiest man in all the world. He had enough money, in fact, that he actually swayed and even controlled governments around the world. And yet, Howard Hughes lived a sunless, joyless, half-lunatic life. In fact, in latter years, he fled from one resort hotel from another, Las Vegas, Nicaragua, Acapulco, and the like. His physical appearance became odder and odder. His straggly beard got longer and longer, hung down to his waist, his hair down to the middle of his back. His fingernails were two inches long, and his toenails hadn't been trimmed in so long that they resembled corkscrews. See, Hughes was married for 13 years to Jean Peters, another familiar name. She was deemed by the world as one of the most beautiful women in that day. But never in that time were the two seen together in public, nor is there record of them having been photographed together. Jean Peters would later retreat to an opulent and carefully manicured French villa on the top of Bel Air, and they would divorce in 1970. Hughes would die in 1979, no children, no wife, and no will. Church, the sad irony about such individuals is that no amount of money no amount of money could ever bring Howard Hughes happiness and satisfaction. And the only people who knew him and were close to him had nothing but absolute disgust for him and broke their silence after his passing. What's the takeaway, church? Howard Hughes is an example of the book of Ecclesiastes, but he's not the only example. Wealth without God leads to desperation. History is replete with a lot of Howard Hughes's in life. I would ask you this morning, the opposite of Howard Hughes' life, a very personal, practical question. I want you to ask this of yourself this morning. How do you personally measure your true worth? How do you measure your true worth? Let me give you a statement of a man who lived radically, radically different than Howard Hughes. He said this, and you know this man. What do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? Who said that statement? Jim Elliott. That was the philosophy and question of a man who would give up his whole life and go and die at the hands of the Aka Indians in Ecuador. What do you have that money cannot buy and death can't take away? Friends, that is the measure of your true worth. Charles Spurgeon says, nothing tells us, and I love this, about the preciousness of our creator than when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Nothing tells us the preciousness of our creator but when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Friends, this is the portfolio of wealth without God. But thankfully, there's another portfolio. Amen? Verse 18, you notice the tone changes here. This is portfolio of wealth with God. First you see happiness. Verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. I don't know about you, but that prompts you to sit up in your chair and take note. I want to know what's good and fitting. 
And then he says this phrase that he, it's throughout the book. There's four sections in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the first three climax in this way. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him for this is his, what church? Reward. This is his reward. Friends, the key to this verse is in the phrase, what God has given him. See, he who understands what he has as a gift from God, there's a happy reward. We are happy people. And that's because things tend to remain in proper perspective when our great God remains in proper focus, yes? We acknowledge that God is the one who gives life. He's the one who gives things. And when we note that, then and only then, unlike Howard Hughes, is happiness found. Verse 19, you also note there's tremendous blessing. It reads, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Now let's pair that back to what he just said, to eat and to drink and to enjoy oneself. You know what he's saying? He's saying, have a good meal. By all means, have a good meal and give thanks. I have a couple of buddies, we like, to, we like to go get a good steak. Nothing wrong with that. Amen? Sorry for all you vegetarians in there. By all means, work hard and enjoy the things that come your way. It's okay to have things. As long as those things don't have you. And how do you know if things have you instead of you having things? Well, just ask yourself, what bothers you when it's gone? What bothers you if it's gone? All of you have been here, and you know what this is like. All of you have been in a situation where a bike or a lawnmower is parked beside your car unbeknownst to you. And you proceed to back up only to hear scraping and the gnashing of teeth. And you know exactly what it is. Friends, in those moments which I have have had, my Toyota car owns me rather than me owning my Toyota car. And I've had to repent in significant ways. So what brings happiness? These verses show us the way. These verses show us that there is Actually, joy in the work. Look at the verse. For every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him, very important, to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. Friends, there are two things that are presented right here. Listen, all good things must be received and understood as coming from God's hand if they are to be used properly and joyfully. Let me say that again. All good things must be received and understood as coming from God if they are to be used Properly and joyfully. But secondly, you and I, and this is humbling, you and I lack the ability to extract enjoyment from life in our own devices. Only God gives such ability. God empowers us such people. And what people? Those who fear him and keep his commandments. God empowers such people to enjoy this life, even though it's not lasting. You're able to extract enjoyment from it. God empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. By the way, just a pastoral side note there. Church, if you see that all you have, all you have is from God, is it ever difficult giving it away? No. It's never difficult giving it away. Why? Because we remember that what we have is not ours in the first place. We remember that money is not ours, it's God. We we constantly thank our small group hosts, and I'm not going to say them by name lest I embarrass them, but they don't have children in their home anymore, and we we pack children in their house to the brim. And we're always thanking them, because as a parent, we appreciate it. We know there's wear and tear And they're just gracious, they're hospitable, and they bless us with it. And as we thank them, they always have the same retort, hey, it's not ours anyway. And that's the mindset, that all of this comes from you. Let me use it properly and joyfully. 
Church, if this is your perspective, this affects everything. This affects how you shop, how you save, how you spend, and how you give. It affects everything. But this portfolio of the godly with wealth doesn't end there. There's happiness. I want that. There's blessing. I want that too. But there's also contentment. You want to talk about happiness, blessing, and contentment, that's what I call a sound portfolio. If you have wealth and you have wealth under the ownership of God, well, then all is well with you, regardless of how much you have. Look at verse 20. What a powerful verse to end. For he will not often consider the years of his life. Because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. He's saying that if your life and worth is found in God, then life is not a burden to you. You have the most sought after commodity in the entire planet. You have contentment. And that proves elusive to most of the world without God. To all of the world who lives without God. Contentment comes to those who fear the Lord. Make no mistake about it, you and I live in a world that is broken. We read of happiness and blessing and contentment, but we still observe injustice and expressions of evil. And these expressions of evil, they mystify us. We don't understand them. They're confusing to us. My encouragement this morning, friends, let's resolve to trust our God who is sovereign and in control, yes? All of his appointments are appropriate in their time. And guess what is entailed in his appointments? How much you have, what house you have, what car you have. And if we're going to have a steady trust in this glorious sovereign God, it's going to require that you and I resist the urge to trust in wealth. This challenges me. Why? Because I love stuff. And if not careful, this stuff can own me. And I'm grateful for this book. I trust you're grateful for this book. On a very practical level, just two things I would encourage to two different people this morning. Unbelievers and believers. First, let me start with this morning. If you are not in Christ, if you have never turned from your self-reliance of trying to make yourself right before the God who made you and turn to Him in desperation and faith and repentance, I need to speak very plain with you, plainly with you. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit you in the day of wrath. Listen to me this morning. There is a day of wrath coming. And all of your accumulation will be for naught. When you stand before the creator who is holy and just, your house will not be beside you. Your car will not be beside you. Your bank account will not be with you. It will just be you in the eyes of him who has eyes of blazing fire, and he will see and know every facet of your heart. And the question is, what will he find? Will he see someone who in arrogance rejected God and his path of salvation through his son Jesus Christ and a person who lived for himself? Or will he see a person who in brokenness cried out to God for mercy and asked for forgiveness of sins of which he could not obtain himself? Riches will not profit you on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And righteousness only comes from one, and his name is Jesus, who lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. If I give you anything this, this morning, is to avail yourself to his mercy and ask that God would apply his finished work on the cross on your behalf, that you might be washed clean and made his own. Riches will not profit you. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one or despise the other. For Christ says, you cannot serve both God and money. Plain and simple. Believers, let me ask you this morning. What do you have that money cannot buy and death can't take away? You know who it is? It's Christ. It's the gospel. That, my friend, can never be taken away. We're about to sing.
My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. I will rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure and wellspring of my soul. That's it, friends. Greatest treasure. 1 Timothy 6.17. One parting exhortation. And rather put it in my own words, I just stop here and let God speak. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, riches, but on God. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. What a wonderful parting word, amen? Church, if you'll stand to your feet, let's close in prayer this morning as the music team comes. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. You have a way with your spirit of getting into our kitchen and rearranging things of which we are grateful. We confess to you we can become an apathetic, complacent people and we get lured in by the trinkets of this life. So we want to start off by just saying thank you. Thank you for your care of our, our own soul, Lord, that you would tend to us and make us like yourself. But we also want to be quick to ask for your forgiveness. Lord, if there's any materialism that we've brought into this place, any obsession with stuff, would you eradicate that from our life? Would you do this good work for your glory? Lord, now as we sing, what a great way to close. Our worth is not in what we own. We thank you for where it lies, Lord. Help us to sing with every ounce of our being, with all the sincerity in the world, for you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.